If you have your Bibles, would you dive with me over to Luke? I'm going to be in the 23rd chapter of Luke in just a moment. And we're going to land in the plane here um, in a little short series that we've been in called Missing Jesus, and we are missing Easter. And we've been talking about how that first Easter as a historical event, we recognize what happened. And we recognize there were individuals, not characters, people who were part of the Easter story, part of the uh, event that would happen. And as humans, as people who were there, some of them understood what was going on, were present in the moment, recognized Something amazing was happening. But others, though they were close and in proximity to the most important, most uh, amazing, impactful moment of history, they were in proximity and they missed it. And we've been talking about how we can be in proximity. We can be close to the most important story. For some of us, we've heard the Easter story even before we were going to church willingly. Some of us aren't going to church willingly right now, and I'm glad you're here. And high five whoever drug you. Good job. But before we were going to church willingly, someone was dragging us to church at least on Easter, maybe on Christmas. And, and before that, at least what we knew about church, what we knew about this whole adventure, were there was an Easter story. We knew about the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus because that was the story that we'd hear. So even though we may not have a background of growing up in church, most of us have heard that part of that story. So today I want to explore what it was like for some of those individuals who were there and yet they missed it. And for us, maybe we've heard the story a whole bunch of times, but we've missed it or we've missed some pieces. So we're going to dive into that. A few weeks ago, we talked about Caiaphas, the high priest, and his proximity and his religious standing and still missing what was going on. And today we're going to talk about another extreme. We're going to talk about two individuals who got a front row seat to Easter, to the cross, to that moment, because they were also crucified at that time. And we don't talk about these guys that much. But they were there, and they were present, and they were in what could only be described as one of the most difficult moments of their life. Can you imagine being, uh, what's the word? You're not really convicted if you haven't had a trial, right? Condemned to death. And you don't have an appeal process. You don't have a lawyer. You just have an understanding that the most painful, prolonged death that the government knows how to do, they're going to do to you. That's a pretty tough spot to be in. I've been in some hard times. I'm not sure if I've been in hard times quite like that. So I want to talk today a little bit about what it's like when we're in really, really, really tough times and the different reactions that we have. You know, <clears throat> being a pastor is kind of a weird gig. There are some days where, as just part of my day, I'm with people who are sick and praying for miracles and believing for miracles, and we're praying and we're talking. There are other days where I'm like an accountant <clears throat> and I'm doing numbers and math and things like that. There are other days where I'm doing weddings and we're at the highest celebratory moment of somebody's life up until this point. And usually that's the parents, <laughs> right? And there's some days where we're doing funerals and we're saying goodbye to loved ones. And those run the whole spectrum 
of emotion. Usually I'm pretty good in those moments um, at just dealing with my own emotions so that I can be present for those that are there. But I remember the hardest funeral I ever did, and I've done some tough ones. The hardest funeral I ever did was in 2010. In 2010, I did a funeral for my cousin, Manuel. Now, Manuel had been murdered. That's a pretty tough funeral to do. Um, If you've been around, I've shared some of my story. My biological dad wasn't around. After age five, I never saw him again. And the men in my life who I looked up to and idolized were my cousins. The whole takes a village to raise a child. And I had several male cousins. And the oldest of my male cousins, so the alpha of that pack, was Manuel. And Manuel was... uh, You know, the oldest, he was often left in charge of us, so he was the semi-disciplinarian. He enjoyed that a little too much. But he was the oldest. He went off to college, graduated from uh, UC Berkeley, Go Bears, and uh, with a law degree. And at this point in his life, he was practicing real estate. He was a real estate agent and was a good man, never got married. Uh, So Manuel's face was on a lot of, uh, what do you call them, real estate signs. You know, they do that, and they put your face on there. So in the course of that, a woman called him who recognized his face. They had known each other. They were friends in college. And said, hey, can we go get dinner and tell you what's going on in my life? And Manuel says, sure, we'll do that. Well, come to find out she'd been estranged from her husband. It was an abusive relationship, and she was looking for a house and a way to kind of escape. And so Manuel met with her. Didn't realize that she had been being stalked by this man, that he was following her and Him seeing the two of them together triggered something in him. And the next morning, he walked into Manuel's home and killed him. Didn't know him, never met him, never saw the guy before. Now, why do I tell you this really hard story? Because that's a tough funeral. Now, I'm pretty good. I can flip the switch and do the job, feel my feelings later, right? That's that's just what you do in those moments. But I wasn't able to do it. I sat, I stood in front of family and friends and looking down at words that I had prepared, and I couldn't say the words. It doesn't happen to me very often. This is the thing I do. I say words. And I got to a point where the only words that I could, oh, let me pull myself together. The only words I could get out were it was not fair. That's about all I had. That's as far as I could go with that moment. And there's a thing about being in tough times. Because it pulls us to real hard conclusions about what we really believe, about who we believe God is, and what we believe God does here on the earth. Because many of us grew up believing God is personal. You hear things like he wants relationship with you and nearness. And if he's personal and he's near and we go through hard times, what does that mean? And how does that look? And oftentimes, let's just be real. It is very hard to disconnect our circumstance from our faith in God. And so if our circumstance is rough, then we think God's not caring. And God's being rough with us. If our circumstance is difficult and sad, we think God's being difficult with us. And we, time, we tend, in our human condition, to connect those two things. Difficult times become major faith challenges for all of us. So today I want to talk to you about two guys who are in their most difficult time. We're talking about a death sentence being pronounced over them. Prior to this, they would have been in a Roman jail. Here's a picture of something like a Roman jail. 
living in these kind of conditions. Now, this might even be a Cadillac for a Roman jail because we know that when they were out of jail space or didn't have a jail handy, the Romans were fine with just digging a hole and then dropping you in there and putting a crate over it. And they also were fine with double stacking you, digging a little bit deeper, putting a crate over that and putting someone on top of you. So a Roman jail cell could have run the gamut of horror and uncomfortability. Now, listen. I've been in some uncomfortable positions. I haven't been in a Roman jail cell. But I can tell you, I've been in positions and circumstances and looked around and said, God, what in the world? And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Difficult challenges are like that for all of us. And I think what's interesting about these two individuals, I'm trying to get away from calling them characters because sometimes we think characters and we think they're they're not people, these two individuals. The things that we do know about them don't exactly endear them to us in the story. What we're certain of is they were criminals. We're also certain of, by their own admission, they were guilty of whatever they did. And I just want to challenge us a little bit here. It becomes easy to look at someone else's circumstance and say, well, they're just experiencing the consequences of their actions. And to categorize them because of that, especially when we're talking about criminals. None of us go, hey, I'm really excited about criminals. But let me just be honest with you. Let's bring this home to America. America has the second largest population of prisoners in the world out of any nation. And number one is Russia. We have about 2.2 million and change people living day to day in prison who need the Lord. On top of that, I think Banner, let me, let me give you the right source here so I don't, I don't lose it. Um, Brennan Center for Justice, <clears throat> they do a surveys on individuals that are incarcerated or have been jailed, and they, they came to this conclusion. Listen to this conclusion. It's crazy. Regardless of race or gender, so get those things out of your picture, researchers estimate that by age 23, nearly one in three Americans will have been arrested. One in three. So look over to your right. Look over to your left. <laughs> One of you has worn some bracelets. We laugh because that's my defense mechanism, but we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about people who have been through some stuff and hit difficult times. And it is easy as we meet these two gentlemen for us to have preconceived pictures because what we know about them is they've been criminals. And they're getting the consequences for their actions. And it's easy for us to dismiss their story. But I'm going to draw us, hopefully, into their story today. You see, life hasn't gone according to plan. Maybe if it's difficult to relate to a criminal, maybe you can relate to the idea that life hasn't gone according to plan. And when life doesn't go according to plan, we often abandon what we believe. We often abandon what we believe. For some of us, life hasn't gone according to plan, and we think about things like our marriage, or we think about our kids, or we think about our health, or we think about our finances, or we think about our career, and we go, yeah, life hasn't always gone according to plan. And the problem is, when life isn't going according to plan, too often we abandon what we believe. We think life didn't do what I want. So maybe God isn't who I want. So let's take a look at these two gentlemen. Two prisoners. I'm in Luke chapter 23. 
I'm going to begin at verse 32. <clears throat> if you don't know what's happening in the story up until this point, Jesus has been arrested. There's been a mockery of a trial. Pilate, who is the Roman uh, governor of that area, that district, doesn't want to give Jesus a death sentence. Doesn't think that it's warranted. Wants to just have him beaten and then sent back out. But Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, needs Jesus to die so that his followers will give up on him so that he doesn't lose the political power. If you miss the political narrative of what's happening in this story, you miss the heat of all of the tension that's going on in this moment. This is a battle for political power. Who's gonna be in charge of the temple? Who's gonna have authority over the resources? There is a thing called the Sanhedrin, which is basically their Senate. Who's gonna get the most votes in the Senate? Like this is what's happening. And this, this upstart Jesus has the heart of the people. And not only does he have the heart of the people, he's performing miracles that violate in their mind the system of government that they have set up under Rome. They need him to go. The problem is he won't do anything wrong. And since he's not doing anything wrong, it's difficult to get rid of them. But they know, because they're politically charged and they're working under Rome, that they can get a loophole conviction and the loophole conviction is if they can get him to admit what he's been saying, that he is the son of God, that he's literally the heir, if God's the king, the prince, or the king of the Jews. He's the heir apparent. He's the king of this entire people. If they can get him to say that before a Roman official, that Roman official will be duty-bound to execute him. Because at that time, no one was allowed to be in charge unless Rome said you can be in charge. You couldn't just be, hey, I'm the king. You can't even say, I'm the king of my house. They'll be like, hey, Rome's the king of your house. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. You don't get to be in charge unless Rome appoints you to that position. So Caiaphas and the high priests and the politically charged climate lead Jesus to this moment where he just simply tells the truth about who he is. And then Pilate says, come on now, we're still not gonna kill him for that. And then they appeal and they say, oh, Pilate, so we have to let Caesar know that you're going to allow a political rival to Caesar to live. You see what's happening? Manipulation. As a result, Jesus is beaten, tortured, and ultimately convicted of sedition to the Roman government. And the way they dealt with that was a very bloody and public spectacle. It was a cross. Now, the Romans didn't develop the cross they didn't think it up, but they certainly perfected it. They certainly perfected it. And into that story and into that narrative, we meet these two gentlemen who are also scheduled for execution at this time. Verse 32 of chapter 23 of Luke. We find two other men. Here's what we know about them so far. They're male. Both criminals were also let outside to be executed. Now, it's interesting to think about what the frame of mind you would have is. You know, I'm a, I'm a hypothetical guy, and I, I think about these things. And I was thinking, in my whole life, I've never really thought about, if I knew I was going to face a death penalty, what would my attitude be like? What would come out of me in those final moments? Would I be defiant? Would I look everybody in the eye and say, this is the worst you can do to me? Would I be in a bargaining mode? I got information on somebody else, <laughs> right? Anything to prolong the process. Would I be in a bargaining mode? Would I be sad, emotional? Would I be confessing everything I've ever done since I was five and can remember? 
I took my brother's Legos. Like, I don't know. <laughs> How far would I go? What we know about these men is they're in that moment. They've been caught. How many have ever been caught? No, don't raise your hand. They've been caught. They did something and they got caught. Now we do different things when we know we're guilty, when we know we've been caught. One of the things we do is we try to bury it. That's one of our moves, right? We know we've been caught and we're just like, we don't talk about that thing anymore. We're just gonna bury that. We're gonna, we're gonna dig that down deep, 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 deep and not talk about that thing anymore that I did that we got caught or whatever it is. And we just try to be in denial, you know, that, that, that majestic uh, river in Egypt. Denial. We're like, we're just gonna sink that thing into the denial. Here's the problem. Those things always come back around. No matter how far, how deep, how hard you try to bury them, they always come back begging to be dealt with. We try to rationalize. Well, I only did it because of this and this and this, and I only did it because he this and you this. We, I, only, I only did it. Now, I love this. I heard a pastor say this. When we rationalize, we just ration out our lies, <laughs> right? We're making excuses and lies, and we're just giving them out where they are the most beneficial. When we start rationalizing, we just ration out our lies. That's not mine original, but it's fun, so I said it. Sometimes we minimalize. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that big a deal. Sometimes we compromise. Come on now. We say, well, I only did it because, and this is probably okay. The dangerous thing we do is we normalize. We normalize. There's a story I heard about a guy. He was in San Francisco, and he was at a Chinese restaurant, and he gets a fortune cookie. This is what the fortune cookie says. It says, commit a sin twice, and it won't feel like a sin. Commit a sin twice and it won't feel. Now, first of all, come on now, Chinese fortune cookies. We could do a little better than that. But what's the implication? We normalize things. Yeah, I used to not be okay with doing this, but it's just normal for me now, right? I used to, I used to know that if I did that, that was crossing the line, but now that's just what I do. We just normalize it. All these reactions we have when we've been found guilty. I don't know which reaction these guys have had. We just know that they've been caught they're criminals, and they know they're about to be executed. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, or Golgotha, it's a, it's a hill, it's a mount that has the appearance, the cadence of a skull. It says, there they crucified him, along with the criminals. So they're there, one on his right and one on his left. Now, it'd be easy to just read that and jump over what a crucifixion really is. And not catch what they actually did to these men, because that's not a very big description. There they crucified him. Okay, next, turn the page. What happens next in the story, Jesus? But we gotta understand what crucifixion is. To crucify literally means to put to death by nailing or binding the hands and feet to a cross. We know because of the other gospel accounts that they nailed Jesus. We can assume they did that to these gentlemen. Now, what's fascinating about this is we're reading Luke's story. And Luke wasn't present when this happened. Luke is a historian and a doctor. He's a fact finder and a truth seeker. Luke's a fascinating individual in history because he went on a mission. 
having received the Holy Spirit, having become a Christian and a follower of Christ. And he said, as a doctor, as a historian, as a fact finder, as a truth seeker, I need to go to the people who were present and I need to hear the stories and I need to corroborate the evidence and I need to document them for posterity because someday somebody's gonna wanna know what happened. And we know that Luke talked to people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, and spent time with them. That Luke interacted with the disciples, that he talked to the followers of Jesus and people who were present. And he compiled this incredible story and he makes a point to say, hey, there were two other guys there and they were crucified. <clears throat> now what we gotta remember about crucifixion is it wasn't merely death by torture. It was a symbolic statement that we are Roman power and you are nothing. It was intended to humiliate it was intended to set you up as an example. Crucifixion was used in order to make an example out of someone. This is why it was the only acceptable form of death for someone who had been accused of sedition, someone who's been accused of trying to overthrow Rome. If you try to overthrow Rome, we're gonna make an example of you. What you may not realize about crucifixion is it wasn't a quick, clean, early death. People lived sometimes three days being crucified. And they didn't crucify people generally up on a hilltop, high up into the sky. They put them sometimes six inches above the ground at eye-to-eye -eye level with people so you would walk by. And here they stood as a reminder, don't you dare cross Rome. Don't you dare. Don't risk it. You know, a death... Sentence will always draw a spectacle. People will always show up to watch a spectacle like that. And this was no different. There's a large crowd that has gathered. Jesus, because of his semi-celebrity status and fanfare, has drawn out a large crowd. And we see a picture of these two men. One to his right and one to his left. And we know they're guilty and we know <clears throat> they have seen crucifixions before and they know what they're in for. A painful, prolonged death. And suddenly, these crowd that's abnormally large because of Jesus, suddenly words from this man in the center ring out. Now this is really powerful. I want you to catch this. Probably till this point in history, no one had ever said anything like this from a Roman cross. After this point in history, I'm pretty sure no one's ever said anything like this from a death sentence moment. But look at what Jesus says in this moment. Jesus says, Father, what? Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine being 8, 10, 12 feet away, <clears throat> worried about your own situation, your own agony, trying to decide, will you man up and be defiant? Will you break down and emotionally let everything out? What, what is the response to your pain, to your situation? And you see someone else in their pain and in their situation, and the first words out of their mouth are, Father, forgive them. Can you imagine the indignation? Can you imagine the frustration you might feel in that moment? Forgive them. They've just nailed my hands, my wrists and feet to a beam of wood and propped me up here as spectacle. 
and your first words are, Father, forgive them. I heard one, uh, uh, one theologian say, you know, it was uncommon, and it's probably still uncommon, for men in crisis to cry out to their fathers. Usually they cry out to their mothers in those, in those moments. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it was an interesting take on, the, on the, just what the, the power of that moment to cry out to your father. And crying out to your father and requesting forgiveness. This is flat out incredible. They've beaten him. They've flayed his flesh. They've mocked him. They've spit him. They've rammed a crown of thorns on his head. They've rolled dice and gambled for his last earthly possessions. And he's innocent. I don't know about you, but when I'm innocent, I will make a stink. You accuse me of something, I'll be like, check the tape. Here's my witnesses. I would never do that. Get off me. I'm innocent. That's the reaction I have when I'm innocent. For Jesus to lead with Father, forgive them. How powerful. You know, it's a funny thing when someone's innocent. Parents, you know you've done this. You ever punish the wrong child? Right? Riley just woke up right there. He was like pointing at his dad. (laughs) Ever punish the wrong child? Get in here and clean up this mess. I didn't make the mess. I saw you playing with these. You clean the mess. I'm the only one. I didn't do it. And then a little bit later, brother comes in and he's like, oh, I did that. She's like, oh, yeah, you get in there too. And you're not off the hook because you should have just done it the first time when I told you to anyways, even if it wasn't your fault. Maybe I'm the only one. We'll cut that from the podcast maybe. <laughs> but it's a thing. I feel horrible when I punish the wrong person. But this is a death sentence that he didn't deserve. And his reaction is, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Now, listen, we don't have the time this morning, but I spent a lot of time this week just prayerfully thinking about these words. Probably I'll have to do three weeks on Father, forgive them somewhere down the road, because I want you to catch the implications. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and we believe that everything Jesus has prayed for up to this point, that he's asked the Father to do, the Father has done. See, he gets whatever he asks for in prayer. So for him in this moment to be on the cross, looking into the crowd, those that have betrayed him, tortured him, abused him, those who are clearly guilty while he is innocent, and to ask the Father to forgive them is incredibly powerful. Can you imagine the implications of that in heaven? God responding to the prayer of his son to forgive those who have shown no remorse. I can't forgive them, Pastor Mike. They're not sorry. I can't forgive them, Pastor Mike. They didn't admit what they did. I can't forgive them, Pastor Mike. They haven't come to me, looked me in the eye, and owned the thing they did to me. And here's Jesus looking out at a crowd of abusers and manipulators saying, forgive them. And here's the father saying, whatever you ask for in prayer. There's way layers to go there. But look at the heart of Jesus. Look at the heart of Jesus. And look at the reaction that it gets. Verse 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at them. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. 
Their reaction to his heart is more mockery. The soldiers also came up to him and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Now, you know somebody who does this. I won't assume you ever have done this. But we see people get in punishment and we think they probably did something to deserve it. They're getting punishment and our instinct is, yeah, they probably did something to deserve that. And some little piece inside of us just kind of, oh, it's what you get. Play with fire, you get burned. And out of the heart of these people present, this is what comes out of them. And they're angry. This is the king of the Jews as a powerful statement written above his head. Now, remember I told you there was a political moment there with Pilate and the the accusation they made against Jesus is that he said he was the king of the Jews. And so when Pilate said, you're gonna put a sign above him that says, this is the king of the Jews, the Jews didn't want that. They wanted a sign above him that said, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews so that they could reject that claim. But Pilate said, you manipulated me into this moment. We're gonna put some truth on the sign. If I'm gonna punish him, come on now. We're gonna put some, there's gonna be some truth present here, whether you like it or not, this is the king of the Jews. And look what happens in these two men as this reaction to Jesus' words, Father, forgive them, begins to come through the crowd. One of the criminals who hung on the tree there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourselves and us. Matthew assures us that both the criminals hurled insults at one point or another. But we finally meet these guys and we finally hear their voice. They're facing what they do deserve and their response in pain is insults. But here's the thing. We do the same thing. When we're getting the consequences of whatever our life has brought us to, we look at God and we say, hey, aren't you God? Do something. Do something. Doesn't matter if I deserve these consequences or not. Just do something. Get off the cross. Oh, and take me with you. And we get frustrated. And we're, we're looking for some kind of thing to justify our experience. Aren't you, God, fix this mess I made? But here the story turns, and one person's faith ignites. Verse 40. <clears throat> but the other criminal rebuked him. He's like, hey, psst, knock it off. Except for his hands over here, so we can't do that. And he says, don't you Fear God, since you're under the same sentence. Basically, he's saying, we're pretty close to seeing God face to face. Let's not poke the bull. You're under the same sentence. This is not the time to get angry at God and start getting small with God. We're really close to seeing him face to face. Don't you respect God? Don't you fear God? Verse 41, listen to this. We are punished justly. For we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's like he comes online. He sees someone who has done nothing wrong, able to forgive, and it activates his faith. When in crisis, do you hurl insults or does it ignite your faith? His faith activates in crisis. How can that be? How can your faith activate in crisis? That seems illogical. It seems insane, except that you've seen that happen. 
You've seen people who get the diagnosis that they're afraid of, but their faith engages. You've seen people in crisis, and instead of responding in fear, faith swells up in them, and you've thought, how in the world could this be? I saw this at my cousin's funeral. I saw people come together, begin to tell stories of life and health and miracles. I remember... Manuel, being the oldest, <clears throat> he got to speak at my great-grandmother's funeral. I was there, but I didn't get to speak because no one knew I was going to be awesome on the microphone yet. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. In a Puerto Rican house, I'm like average. <laughs> Whoever has the loudest voice gets to talk the most. That's how that works. Manuel was the oldest and strongest and loudest, so he got to talk. But I remember him at my grandmother's funeral sharing and he was talking about the cards we used to get from my great-grandmother. See, my great-grandmother battled cancer. At about age 52, if I remember right, they gave her six months to live, and she lived to 96. She was tough. And she would write these little cards in her scrawling cursive. And they would, it's a bunch of words in Spanish we didn't understand, and it would always end with Dios te bendiga, which essentially means God bless you. And I remember Manuel talking about getting these cards and knowing that my grandmother held on to life through faith. And him talking about how that ignited faith in him. And here's my cousin, his voice at one funeral echoing at his funeral as people share that story. And it begins to bring life. And people begin to cry both happy and sad tears. In the most difficult of situations, faith erupts. And faith ignites. And faith comes alive. Verse 42 after his faith ignites, he looks at Jesus, and we're going to look at these next two verses a lot, but if you're a highlighter, you should highlight these next two verses, and they should just challenge everything. <clears throat> Verse 42, then Jesus, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, that's pretty bold. He's facing a death sentence for what he deserves. He recognizes that Jesus is getting mocked and insulted and harshly treated for something he doesn't deserve. He says, there's something there that's given life. And when you get to the kingdom, just remember a poor slob like me. And look at Jesus's answer because this is amazing. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is one of the most remarkable sentences in the Bible. There are so many implications here. As a matter of fact, it's so remarkable that I think Jesus had to say, I tell you the truth, because otherwise I don't think I would believe it. This guy gets a ticket punched to heaven, to paradise. It's the most clear, guaranteed ride to paradise that anybody in the scriptures gets. Are you kidding me? This guy who's getting what he deserves, who's living the, the results of his life, that he, he's rightfully condemned. He's a criminal. Whatever he's done is so horrific that Rome wants an absolute prolonged statement. Don't be like this guy. So he's getting the worst death imaginable. And he hears the words of Jesus, hey, forgive them, Father. And suddenly... He comes online, and then let's go back for a second. 
Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. That's the worst sinner's prayer in the Bible. Are you kidding me? That can't be the sinner's prayer that gets you to heaven. Like everybody's looking for the ticket. Like what's the recipe to get to heaven? Hey, hey bro, remember me when you get there. Are you serious? And it works. It works. Jesus responds to him. He says, hey, bro, remember me when you get to heaven. And Jesus is like, cool, fist bump through the cross. Are you serious? This is not a bro moment. This is the cross. This is the cross. And Jesus just rocks our theology. He rocks the way we think about punishment. He introduces grace at a scale that's unimaginable. This guy didn't have time to go get water baptized. He didn't receive the Holy Spirit and have the evidence of it in his life. He didn't have all the things that we think are part of what it takes to get your ticket punch. Listen, if he's gonna punch some tickets, there's better tickets to punch. I was looking through the scriptures just thinking, you know, wouldn't it be nice if Moses got a guaranteed ticket punch at the end of his, uh, you know, 40 years in the desert? He doesn't get to cross the, the, uh, the river and, and he has to go up on the mountain and die. Wouldn't it be nice if he's like, and by the way, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Moses is like, oh, sweet. Okay, that's worth it, right? He didn't get that. David didn't get that. Daniel didn't get that. The prophets didn't get that. You could fast forward through the New Testament. How about John the Baptist? He was looking for some of that. He was frustrated. He's like, if you're really who you say you are, can you hook a brother up? Like, this is getting rough. He didn't get a, don't worry, tomorrow you'll be with me in paradise. He got a chopped head. Why does this guy get his ticket punched to paradise? And Jesus, oh, I love this. I tell you the truth. Today, when? Today, you'll be what? With me. Now think about that for just a second. He doesn't just say, today, you'll be dancing with angels and playing a harp. You'll be like playing baseball, throwing pitch at perfect games every day. I don't know what your heaven looks like for you. Dancing on golden streets, right? Whatever it is, right? You'll finally be able to sing and play guitar like Ryan over here, right? Whatever it is. He doesn't say any of those things. The promise is always, listen, the more you get into scripture, the more you'll find this. The promise is always proximity. You'll be with me. I'll be with you. We'll be close. We'll be together. You are not alone. That's the promise. That's the gospel story. That's the heart of God. I have done this because I want to be with you and I want to be close. And today, you'll be with me in paradise. If that's sorry sinner's prayer, hey, bro, remember me when you get there as a testimony of his faith. How powerful were the words, Father, forgive them. I'm receiving that. Probably the best picture we have of you're saved by grace and not by works. It's probably the best evidence you have that if you go, well, my life's been a hot mess. How could God love me? And I can tell you, well, that's nonsense because my life is a hot mess and your life is a hot mess, and your life and your life, we're all hot messes. And God's not keeping score the way we keep score. You're playing the wrong game if you're trying to keep score with him. Let's see what happens next. Verse 44. <clears throat> it was about the sixth hour. That's noon for those of you that don't speak sixth hour language. And darkness came over the whole land 
and it lasted until the ninth hour. That's three in the afternoon. <clears throat> Listen to this. For the sun stopped shining. This is Luke. He's a historian, and he's interviewing people. Imagine wherever he was at the moment for the sun to stop shining. His historical narrative is, hey, that's what was going on? I don't know. I'm just guessing. As he begins to investigate the timing, and he talks to Mary, and he talks to witnesses, they say, the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus calls out with a loud voice. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then when he said this, he breathed his last. So from noon to three, it goes dark. From noon to three, we don't see any of the, any of the light that, that would be in that part of the day. Now, what's fascinating about this is back in Luke chapter 22, when they were arresting him, uh, verse 53, and, and uh, he, they were trying to put charges against him. He's like, I was with you every day in the temple courts, and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Those are his words, because he knew darkness was coming. That's part of why that song that we learned today is so powerful. That darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. And let's face it, we all hit some dark days. And it is easy in those dark days to lose sight of the words of Jesus. These two men in proximity, having completely different reactions. The last thing we see in this part of the story is that the temple experienced a little makeover. They had a curtain in the temple. And if you grew up in church, you probably heard this, but you may not just know the purpose of it. There was a temple, and it, uh, there was a temple, and that on one side of the curtain was what they called the Holy of Holies. It is where the Ark of the Covenant and the place where they believed that God most existed on Earth. When He was here and present on Earth, He stayed in this area, and they had to put a curtain up because if you got too close to the holiness of God and you were not holy, you would die. As a matter of fact, when the priest went in to that place, they would tie a rope to his ankle and some bells on him so they could make sure that he hadn't just fallen over and died because maybe he had some hidden stuff that he didn't get out in the open. And he got in close to the ark and keeled over and they had to tow him out. That was their strategy. That's how difficult it was before this moment, listen, to get close to the Father. So for Jesus to say, that is going to change. You're going to be forgiven now. And you're going to be made clean. And you're going to be made whole so that you can get into the presence of the Father is an incredible truth and testimony of his heart. That's why this moment is so big. That's why it's so incredible that somebody who had lived the life that this guy had lived gets to hear words like today, you'll be with me in paradise. And here's the paradigm that we have to struggle with. We all face difficult times. Sometimes we face difficult times because of what we've done, and we deserve it. It's the consequences of our actions, and we know we deserve it. Okay. Sometimes we're in an innocent position where we didn't even do the thing that, that it drew us to. Okay. Jesus is the heart, although across the whole way, is forgive and be close to me. Forgive and be close to me. So I'm asking the question today, where does life circumstance leave you? 
When you're in crisis, do you hurl insults or does it ignite your faith? I think for some of us in here today, if we're just honest, hey, Lord, remember me might be all we could manage. Praise God, that's enough. Maybe we couldn't manage a full introspection evaluation of our life at this moment. That would be a large piece. But hey, God, remember me, we could manage. Thank God, that's enough. He said, remember me when you come into the kingdom, into your kingdom. Remember that Jesus is, think about the courage it takes to say that out loud. I imagine that he and the other thief had been in proximity in their prison situation, at least at some level. And this guy's over here hurling insults. Get us off the cross if you're God. And this guy's saying, no, 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 no. Stop doing that. God, if you're God, just remember me. For some of you, it might take a little courage. It takes courage when everyone else is mocking. Some of you are in a situation right now and everyone else is mocking you and just standing up and saying, I don't know how this is gonna end, but I know God's in control would be incredible courage for you. It'd be incredible courage for you. Maybe some of you are here. This is a little bit harder, but, and there's a criminal in your life that needs to be forgiven. Someone's robbed, stolen, harmed, taken from you. And Jesus looked out at a crowd of people who have beaten him, abused him, mocked him, robbed him of his humanity, of his, what his worth would have been, treated him like he had no worth. And his reaction in the face of his accusers and those that had done that, his father, just forgive them, they don't know. They don't know the eternal implications of this behavior, but I do. And I want something better for them. Listen, Robert Hoselton got 15 years for murdering my cousin. I don't know if that's fair or not. I'm not the, I'm not the king of those decisions. I probably would have given more. He got 15 years for taking the life of my cousin. He got 15 years and he got forgiveness. He got 15 years and he gets forgiveness because the picture I have of who God is and who Jesus is compels my heart to give it. I didn't know if I was going to be able to say that today. First service, it got out of me. So I was like, okay, let's just admit it. He got 15 years and he got forgiveness. He didn't get forgiveness on day one. I'm going to tell you that. It was a little bit of a journey. Maybe for some of you today, you feel a little bit like, hey, man, I've been taking a beating for a long time from somebody else's crimes and someone else's behavior. But like Jesus, you would just say, hey, Father, I'm giving them to you. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm going to bring the team up and we're going to end with communion and then we got one more piece at the end of that so don't run away from me. But we do communion here um, because the scripture asks us to do it, invites us to do it. It says no, there's no pattern of how often to do it. It just says whenever you do do this, just remember, remember Jesus. Remember what I've done and what I've accomplished for you. Remember that I, from this position looked out at the world and looked out at broken people and I didn't see what everyone else saw. I saw 
hope and life and potential and said, God, forgive them. That to my right and to my left were people who deserved, come on, what they were getting. And the words out of my mouth was, forgive them. And if the words out of your mouth would just be, hey, God, then remember me, then the next words out of my mouth would be, okay. Okay, you're in. Okay. 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 Maybe you're there. We're going to pass out the elements. And when you have your elements, I'm just going to ask you to stand. And we're going to sing this old hymn and, and just remember the power of his blood. And then, then hold on to your elements. It's just a juice cup and a bread. Hold on to those. And when we're done, we'll pray and we'll take that together. Okay? So once you have that, just stand. And God, in this moment, I just pray, however we talk to you, we would just do it and have an honest moment. For some of us, it's about forgiving a criminal. For some of us, it's about accepting forgiveness and wiping that slate clean. And for some of us, it's just the courage to say, yeah, remember me, I'm still here. As we lift our voice and as we worship, would you draw near to us and would you do what your word promises you'll do and come close?